Binging on movies, binging with Jason. You're binging on movies with Jason. Here comes the binge. Hey everybody, welcome to the very first episode of the Binge Podcast, full of movie news, reviews, and interviews. My name is Jason Leroy, and I'm here with my producer and co-host, Rebecca Larte. Hello. We're so excited to be bringing you the very first uh, episode of this podcast. Uh, I am just a movie lover, I'm a movie buff. If you guys already know me, then you know my reviews. Uh, I have been reviewing movies in some capacity now for 20 years, actually. My very first uh, uh, reviews were done in 1995 uh, for the Young Observer Youth section of my hometown newspaper, the Observer Reporter of Washington and Green Counties, <laughs> uh, where they would just, you know, sort of humor uh, the more. Uh, sort of pretentious children of the area by <laughs> giving them a forum. Encouraging. Yes, encouraging. And it was basically like me and a bunch of homeschooled kids. Like there was this one giant homeschooled family that like wrote the entire you section and there was just like me in the corner of my little, little like quippy movie reviews <laughs> or whatever else I wanted to write about. Like I saw Hole recently <laughs> and here is my thoughts on how that performance was. Uh, but yeah, I am a just... I love movies. It's my passion. I love talking about them. I love reading about them. I love writing about them. And here we are. And I'm so excited to be having this new uh, forum to be doing that with you guys. Uh, I am a member of the San Francisco Film Critics Circle, uh, which is a, a lovely little organization here in the Bay Area. And uh, this, actually, I'm coming off of a weekend where being in the Film Critic Circle meant a lot more than it usually does, uh, <laughs> because the Mill Valley Film Festival is happening right now, which is an awesome festival here in the Bay Area where all the top movies from festivals all around the world, from you know Toronto and Cannes and Sundance, uh, sort of all the best of the year all come together to make the Bay Area debuts at Mill Valley, and they bring with them a lot of great uh, actors and filmmakers. So this weekend... I have been very drunk in the presence of both Sarah Silverman and Ian McKellen, and uh, I am recovering from that right now, so my voice might be a little deeper than it's going to sound in future episodes of this podcast. We can work this into Jason uh, Jason Bingo. What celebrity did you get drunk with this weekend? <laughs> yeah, I mean, specifically, what celebrity did I get drunk with and then sit on the floor in front of, which is a weird thing that oh. I do in both. Like, if you guys are seeing these pictures on Facebook or Instagram, then you can see that in every one of these setups, I am sitting on the floor in front of these celebrities. And it's all because of a woman named Andrea Chase, who is in the Film Creek Circle and who was drunkenly encouraging me to be silly in front of these people. And so silly I was and silly I look, which I believe is why Sir Ian pat me on the head, uh, which you can see in the photos as well. He just I just sat down in front of him. And then he just started patting the top of my head. And I couldn't see him when he was doing it. I would just suddenly just felt his hand on my head, just like patting my hair. And I'm like, this is happening. That must have felt like a really reassuring, like... It did. Like an old gay grandfather. Oh my God, exactly. Like the old gay grandfather I've always wanted. Always wanted. Um, except for like, I was also on the verge of kind of like, you know, offering myself to him because it's Ian McKellen. Sure, so I mean, just out of on. respect, you know, it's you just like, to. okay, I mean, it's kind of like, I, 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 he's done so much. The least I can do is put out. Um, but uh, anyway, that did not happen. And uh, it was a wonderful weekend full of good times and movies that uh, I will likely be talking about in um, upcoming episodes of this podcast. But for this one, uh, we're going to be covering some new and recent releases, doing some reviews of movies such as Bridge of Spies, Crimson Peak, Steve Jobs, and The Final Girls. Uh, furthermore, we will also be talking about Freeheld, uh, which brings us our very first interview for the podcast. And I 
could not be more excited (laughs) about this because I actually got to sit down with my all-time favorite actress, the one and only Julianne Moore, as well as Ellen Page, who is, you know, fine. And, uh, and uh, I mean, it's just a lifelong dream come true. Um, I, she has been my favorite for so long, and I can't believe that the very first episode of this podcast is going to have her talking on it. So that's really, really, really cool. So we can only go down from here. Yeah, exactly. So, like, just listen to this one and then ignore me, because, like, there's just going to be nothing worth hearing from here on out. It's just going to be people who are not Julianne Moore. Uh, so, but I'll try to make them fun anyway. Uh, so we'll be talking with Julianne Moore and Ellen Page about Freeheld uh, in just a bit. And yeah, covering some reviews. Great. And, uh, so let's dive right in. Let's get started with uh, this week's first review. We're going to do Bridge of Spies. Brooklyn lawyer James B. Donovan, played by Tom Hanks, is thrust into the center of the Cold War when he is given a mission to negotiate the release of Francis Gary Powers, a pilot whose U-2 spy plane was shot down over the Soviet Union. We need to know. Don't go Boy Scout on me. We don't have a rule book here. You're Agent Hoffman, yeah? Yeah. German extraction. Yeah, so? My name's Donovan. Irish, both sides. Mother and father. I'm Irish. You're German. But what makes us both Americans? Just one thing. One, one, one. The rule book. We call it the Constitution, and we agree to the rules, and that's what makes us Americans. It's all that makes us Americans, so don't tell me there's no rule book, and don't nod at me like that, you son of a bitch. Once again, Steven Spielberg returns to the 20th century for another story about a businessman who is redeemed by negotiating trades in exchange for freedom in wartime Germany. Sound familiar? Although in this case, it's actually the Cold War, so at the very least, he's moving past World War II. Bridges Spies begins as a provocative take on the un-American things that Americans will do when we feel threatened. Uh, When Tom Hanks' lawyer character is assigned to defend an accused Soviet spy, he's told that it's to prove to the communists the value of the American way. Except, it turns out, everyone wants him to just play along and kind of pantomime his lawyer ring. Uh, So when he actually takes them at their word and gives the accused man a proper defense, he immediately becomes a target. This half of the film is engrossing, infuriating, and edifying. But then at the halfway point, Bridge of Spies pivots into a completely separate film. Suddenly, Hanks' character is sent on a top-secret mission overseas to negotiate a prisoner exchange between the U.S. and Soviet Russia. The man he just defended, masterfully played by Mark Rylance, for a wholesome-looking American pilot, played by the hot ginger douche from Whiplash. <laughs> Appropriately for a film about negotiation, Bridges Spies is almost entirely dialogue-driven, even the, although the script, co-written by Joel and Ethan Cohen, displays few glimmers of their deadpan wit. As with the vast majority of Cold War narratives, uh, unless you're one of those kind of weird old white dudes who loves John le Carre and Tom Clancy, i.e., you know, like all of our dads. Dads, yeah. Dads, dads. Uh, Bridge of Spies is an exceedingly dry movie uh, without much in the way of action. Uh, even a scene in which Tom Hanks is circled by a pack of like hot East German street toughs ends not in a hot Tim, uh, Tom of Finland gangbang, uh, but in a bilingual <laughs> negotiation for his coat. That so. would have made a great t-shirt. <laughs> Tom of Finland t-shirts always the best. Yes, they, they always are. And so I was hoping for a Tom of Finland uh, angle on this one, but uh, unfortunately, no. It was a bilingual negotiation for Tom Hanks's coat. It's that kind of movie. Uh, It does have one stunning centerpiece action sequence in which the gender douche from Whiplash is shot out of the sky while uh, piloting his plane. 
which is shown from a jaw-droppingly visceral approach. I can't say I've seen it before, so that was really? awesome. Yeah, really, really incredible action sequence. Uh, otherwise, most of the credit for Bridget Spies working as well as it does goes to Hanks, uh, who keeps this dry historical drama well lubricated with his inestimable charm and star power. Uh, it should be known, however, that it's definitely not a movie for actresses. In the role of Tom Hanks' wife, Oscar nominee Amy Ryan is the only woman in more than one scene, and she's given nothing to do other than just kind of put her hands on her hips while beaming at or admonishing her husband. Uh, another thing this movie isn't is uh, loud. Uh, I went into the theater uh, with a, uh, a tray of nachos because I hadn't had dinner yet, and I'm thinking, like, okay, cool, like it's a Steven Spielberg war movie, it's gonna be loud as fuck. I can like totally just like hunk down on these nachos. And oh my God, like the whole first hour, there was like barely even a score. It was just like lots of silent, silent watching, silent staring. And as I'm like, you know, putting each chip into my mouth, I'm (laughs) like individually. Yeah. One by one, Mm -hmm. putting these chips into my mouth. uh, I'm like waiting for there to be some kind of noise to even like bite down. Because if I don't do that, there was this guy sitting next to me who just stop and just stare at me. He just whip his face in my direction and just glare. And I'm like, I was that guy. And I'm just kind of like, I'm sorry. I eat my nachos. (laughs) And legit, the guy ended up getting up and moving into another seat because I was so loud with my nachos. Uh, So my apologies to that dude. Actually, no, fuck that dude. Have you never been to a movie before, dude? No, you're allowed to eat popcorn Yeah, people eat at movies. There's literally only crunchy foods are served at movies. Like, maybe that's poor planning, but (laughs) that's that's just the state of the world. But yeah, Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg movie, I would imagine like a band of brothers, the Pacific, Mm -hmm. loud, yeah, you think it's just gonna be lots of you know like you know the whirring of planes mm-hmm. and tanks and old gun sounds, metal yeah. against metal. Right. Yes. Well, you know, Tom of Finland well. might, might have been a little closer <laughs> to that than uh, than Bridges Fies ultimately was. So did you just let the nachos get moist in your mouth and then swallow them down? <laughs> That's what I would have done if I were so hungry. <laughs> I was doing that thing where you're like really gently chewing, um, like just making it ever so slightly more broken up. <laughs> Uh, and just texturally, it's such a pleasure oh, yeah, to have like kind of you know mouth wetted, vaguely <laughs> broken nacho just like floating around your mouth. And did you have cheese? I feel like if you could if you could mm-hmm. have enough cheese to dull the crunch, I the, the, you would think that the cheese would help. The cheese was stranding me in the mm. field. I was like saving Private Ryan, and I needed that <laughs> cheese to come and get me, and it did not. It failed. Uh, so just like that movie was a parable about you know how we're never really safe. <laughs> <laughs> So I had a question about um, this movie. So when you think of Cold War movies, you think of like Cold War movies from the 60s that have like a very like Manchurian candidate. It's very like who's at fault. Everyone's kind of to blame. Mm. Then you have 80s movies about the Cold War where it's like Rocky or very like America's, you know, right. Fight Mm -hmm. the Red. And then you have these movies that have come out recently, like Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy. And this one, where does this fall along the lines of? placing blame or kind mm. of holding somebody responsible. I mean, the clip we, we listened to was, was very like, this is America. Uh, this right. is the Constitution. Like, how do you feel the movie kind of aligns along along that? Well, I would say it's, you know, it, it's definitely, uh, you know, sort of a post-Cold War Hollywood liberal take on the okay. Cold War. So it's absolutely not, you know, raw, raw patriotic. It's patriotic in the liberal way where it's like, you know, as Americans, we should conduct ourselves a certain way. And you know we, you know if we're if we're going to give a proper um, due process trial to an accused Soviet spy, then we should really do it. This is you know what Tom mm-hmm. Hanks' character mm-hmm. represents, and then he is targeted by his community because he defends the spy in the name of the American way when they want him to just throw the case, 
Okay, so, so it's a little it's, Mr. Hanks goes to Washington. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So it's so it's definitely not you know anti-Soviet, anti-communist. Okay. Um, you know, it, it does show that you know the experience that the captured Soviet spy has is certainly a little bit more probably cheery than the one that the captured American pilot has, mm-hmm. uh, if only because you know America is a wealthier nation and so the conditions uh, were not as dire. Right. as they were for this man captured by the Soviets. So, But yeah, no, it's it's definitely not a movie that's trying to provoke suspicion or, or reignite the Cold War. It's <laughs> oh, de- good. It's definitely sort of like a you know liberal retrospective look backward at the, at the Cold War. And your rating for this movie? Well, so with that said, let's dive into our rating system here at The Binge. Uh, so when I used to write reviews, uh, I generally would avoid ratings because people would then just look at the ratings and not read my reviews, you fuckers. <laughs> so I never used them. Uh, but now that we're on this podcast, I feel like I need to give you guys something to walk away from with like a, just a definitive rating of these movies. And so given the name of the podcast, uh, what we were thinking about is we're going to go with three categories. The best being bingeable meaning absolutely go all in on this. Mm -hmm. Consume with moderation, meaning it's like, meh, not terrible, it's fine. Do you have the time? (laughs) Exactly, if you have the time, you know, like it's kind of what I always, whenever you've ever asked me how a movie is, and I go, it's fine, then it's kind of this middle one. Is he cute? He's like, he's he's he's, he's not bad looking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And then the worst being, send it back. Just send it right back. Send it back. Don't want it. Uh, shut it down. Shut it down. Shut it down. And uh, Bridge of Spies? Bridge of Spies, I would say, is a solid moderation plus. Oh. I'm not... A, yeah, I'm going to still add pluses and minuses okay. in there, I think. Uh, it's not... It's it's not fresh uh, or striking enough to be bingeable. It's certainly not terrible. It's just a solid consume and moderation a plus. That's where <laughs> we're putting this guy. And Bridge of Spies comes out October 16th and is rated PG-13 for some violence and brief strong language. And now it's time for my very first pick of the week. And the honor for the very, for the inaugural, the inaugural binge pick of the week goes to the horror comedy, The Final Girls. In The Final Girls, a young woman grieving the loss of her mother, a famous scream queen from the 1980s, finds herself pulled into the world of her mom's most famous movie. Reunited, the women must fight off the film's maniacal killer. Let's listen to the clip. Camp Bloodbath is the granddaddy of all campsite slasher films. Max's mom plays Nancy, this shy girl next door. It's cool you get to remember your mom this way. At least I get to see her on the anniversary of her death, even if she is being chased by a psycho. (coughs) Guys, somebody's coming. Do you guys know the way to Camp Bluefin? Tina! So, we're in the movie. Hey. Oh, hi. What's your name? Max. <laughs> How do we get out of here? Movies like this end when the final girl kills the bad guy and the credits roll. That's Paula. That's the final girl. We just have to stay with her till the end of the movie. I know in the movie you're supposed to die, but that doesn't mean you have to, right? What do we do now? We fight. Whoa, that sounds really scary. Is it? Is it a scary movie? Well, you know, it's it's a horror comedy. It's actually not scary so much as it is just really, really clever. Uh, it sort of combines the clever genre meta humor of Scream with that 
Purple Rise, uh, Purple Rose of Cairo, Pleasantville, like how did we get inside the movie uh, kind of thing. So, you know, it uses a lot of the tropes of horror movies and, you know, it, most of it takes place in a horror movie, except for it's like a cheesy 80s slasher movie. So already there's that humor, uh, you know, it's more making fun of what those movies were like. But the thing that's really so surprising about it is that it's a very, very poignant uh, riff on grief. Uh, so the main character, uh, played by Tessa Farmiga from American Horror Story, mm-hmm. uh, as we've discussed, she is mourning her mother, who had been uh, a horror movie uh, starlet in the 80s. And uh, and so this, this thing of her going into the movie, um, even though it seems really, really funny, like, oh, she's in the funny horror movie, she also, her mother dies in the movie, and she is trying to prevent that from happening. Like if she can stop her mother from being killed in the movie, then she'll feel on some level like she she made her live, like she helped her survive in real life. And yeah, even though in real life she has died. Um, Okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, in real life, uh, yeah, the movie begins with um, her mother, who's played by Malin Ackerman, who I will always know and love best as Juna, baby girl from the comeback. (laughs) Uh, the movie begins with Malin Ackerman's character dying in a car accident, and then the whole conceit is that it's the uh, it's three years since that happened, and her daughter is going to uh, sort of a big special midnight screening of her mother's most famous horror movie, and her daughter oh, is a special see. guest, and she's accompanied by friends played by a who's who of uh, TV actors, uh, Thomas Middleditch of Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. Nina Dobrev from The Vampire Diaries, uh, Alia Shawkat from Arrested Development. Oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it. Marry me. Yeah. <laughs> maybe me marry. <laughs> uh, she's in it. And uh, as well as um, some like hunky blonde twink from The Hunger Games. What's his name? I can't remember. <laughs> I don't know. It's likely just an anonymous uh, generic blonde twink man from, uh, from uh, oh, and Adam Devine also from, uh, from Workaholics. Okay. And Pitch Perfect is in it as well. Uh, so, but yeah, so it's a great cast. It has a great concept. The execution is really fantastic. It's so fun to watch. Uh, it's just, I feel like it's going to be a sort of a word of mouth uh, cult hit. And uh, it's already available uh, VOD on iTunes as well as in theaters. So you don't even have to leave your home to watch it. It's definitely a fun movie to get together with friends with and, uh, and, and just enjoy yourselves. How do you feel like this movie and um, uh, Wet Hot American Summer coming back out, sort of like revisiting these 80s comedy? Yeah. Like, I know that there's, they have the kind of like super sexualized, mm. um, mm-hmm. is, does this movie take it in the same way? You know, yeah, it's, and it's funny that there's, you know, well, I mean, Wet Hot American Summer, of course, initially came out in the aughts, and so that was the the decade of 80s nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And so it's 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 funny now that The Final Girls is coming out in the, in the, in the decade of 90s nostalgia, but is very much an 80s uh, send-up. Uh, and, you know, it does, similarly to Wet Hot American Summer, it definitely riffs on sort of the over-sexualization of, you know, of women in those films. But it also, you know, sort of uh, addresses the misogyny and sexism of like the final girl thing that she like that she has to be a virgin uh that you know uh that if you have sex then you're punished uh like it it, it's very it's very smart and empowering uh the way it sort of addresses the subjugation of women in uh horror films uh so yeah it's a really it's a really cool clever riff on um on all those different issues that people would notice about horror movies that just come up again 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 awesome 
so that was your pick of the week. Final Girls is out now in theaters and on iTunes and is rated PG-13 for horror violence, some crude and sexual material, language, and drug use. All right, next let's talk about Steve Jobs. Set backstage at three iconic product launches and ending in 1998 with the unveiling of the iMac, Steve Jobs takes us behind the scenes of the digital revolution to paint a portrait of the man at its epicenter. What if the computer was a beautiful object, something you want to look at and have in your home? And what if, instead of it being in the right hands, it was in everyone's hands? We'd be talking about the most tectonic shift in a status quo since... Ever. Your Apple stock is worth $441 million. And your daughter and her mother are on welfare. She's not my daughter! You make people miserable. The board believes you're no longer necessary to this company. I sat in a garage and invented the future. Because artists lead and hacks ask for a show of hands. Co-founder Stephen Jobs. Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs is returning to Apple. Two most significant events of the 20th century. The Allies win the war and this. Ladies and gentlemen. Let me start by saying that I won't be commenting on the accuracy issue. I feel like a lot of the conversation around this movie so far has been uh, a lot of outrage that like, oh, it's not following strictly the details of his life. And it's it's imagined. It's imagined. And like, well, yeah, you know, it is imagined. And that's part of why the movie is what it is. But I never met Steve Jobs. I haven't read any of the books about him. I know basically nothing about him. Uh so frankly, I think the accuracy question is irrelevant to what Aaron Sorkin's goals were with the screenplay. Uh, sure, for most people that would be the case. Like, how many people have read the book or have an experience? Yeah, you know, I, and I think it has to do with what the goals of the filmmakers are. Mm-hmm. Uh, at I attended a San Francisco premiere of this film, and see uh, Aaron Sorkin and Danny Boyle, the director, were both there. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of questions asked about... Uh, accuracy, of course, because the film imagines quite a bit. It essentially imagines uh, a Greek chorus of the same six or so people that are backstage with Steve at each of these three product launches. Uh, because when they say that it's a three-act film, it is quite literally a three-act film. When I first heard that, I was like, well, yeah, no shit. You know, most movies are three acts. Right. But no, it's like a play. Uh, it's it's all sort of real time backstage leading up to each of these three launches, and there's very little else in the movie other than just that. And they never actually even show the launches. Each act ends just as they hit the the stage. And it has the whole when you say backstage real time, I'm imagining every other Sorkin <laughs> walk and talk and handing papers and yeah, yeah. It has it has it's very Sorkin. It's very Sorkin, and, and perhaps as a result of that, uh, one of the actors who uh, succeeds the best is Jeff Daniels. Uh, who plays John Scully, uh, former CEO of Apple. And uh, because Daniels is coming off of three seasons as Aaron Sorkin's on-screen mouthpiece in the newsroom. Right. Uh, so he is well-versed in Sorkinese. Speaking fast. Yes, speaking fast in a walk and talk. Uh, the rest of the actors, frankly, and he has this incredible cast with Michael Fassbender playing Steve Jobs and Kate Winslet playing Joanna Hoffman, uh, Seth Rogen playing Steve Wozniak. Uh these actors seem almost like they're just fighting to keep their head above water. Uh, all the raging dialogue that's just you know pouring out of their mouths that they don't really seem to be able to get emotional connections with their characters. 
they seem very sort of just bogged down by the dialogue. They're just trying to catch up. Just trying to just trying to make sure they don't miss a word. Just trying to <laughs> just trying to get it all out. Uh, uh, Sorkin joked at the Q and A that in the third act, the reason that Fassbender appears so much lighter on screen uh, is that he did not have any further acts to memorize. Uh, oh wow! He said that just an uh, unburdening. Yeah, an unburdening. Uh, you know, they they rehearsed each one like a play. Then they did it sequentially. They actually so few films are filmed chronologically, but this one right. was. They took it act by act. And they just knocked it down. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, so it's very fascinating. I, I want to give props to Aaron Sorkin for having such kind of a boldly, you know, sort of borderline experimental approach to telling the story of Steve Jobs. Uh, to say that, you know, I'm not going to do a cradle to the grave biopic. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use a structure where I have these three product launches and I'm going to have these imagined conversations happening behind the scenes at each one. And I'm going to use that to try to get to the heart of this this man who was one of the most important influential uh you know men of our time uh whose products changed the world and uh and i'd like to think that you know steve would at the very least appreciate the innovation that aaron sorkin shows right. in the structure uh even if the film itself is not a masterpiece uh it fails to connect emotionally as mm-hmm. i said before the performances mm-hmm. don't really connect emotionally and uh, it also sort of writes an overly upbeat, optimistic finish into the film, wherein Steve and his daughter, Lisa, uh, with whom he'd had sort of like a notoriously complicated relationship, uh, uh, have a reconciliation. And it's played just in a really overly sentimental way. I'm uh, interested in how that story, that story, mm-hmm. the, the personal daughter story overlaps with the product launches, how those two things are kind of like tied in at all, if that's the, mm-hmm. the angle in which the story is told. The daughter is the, the emotional center of the film. She's sort of the moral compass. Uh, you know, as the film begins, uh, he, you know, she's a little girl and there's a fraught scene uh, backstage of the Mac launch where... He is fighting with her mother, who's played by Catherine Waterston, who's one of my favorites in the oh, movie. Oh, yeah, she's fantastic. She's fantastic in this film. She really uh, probably is the best at emotionally connecting uh, with the uh, with the character. And so it just kind of chronicles him through these launches, where he's at with his relationship with his daughter. And, you know, in the end, having, you know, finally acknowledged her and, uh, and you know, seeking to reconcile. So because the, the, the whole kind of thrust of the movie is, you know, here's this man who... Uh, was one of the great thinkers, innovators of our time, whose products changed our lives and the world forever. But he always had that kind of dissonance where his products were great, but he had his character was always called into question. Mm-hmm. And so these conversations are, you know, a kind of a great chorus of these voices in his head, making him question himself mm-hmm. and wondering, you know, is he any good as a person? And uh, so, and the question of whether he can embrace his daughter as his own is sort of the defining question of. Is he redeemable? Interesting. And I can't wait to see how that pans out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, uh, what do you, uh, what's the review on this one? You know, I'm going to also give this one a consume in moderation. Consume in moderation. Consume in moderation. You know, there's, there's a lot that's, uh, that's striking about it and that's original uh, in terms of the structure. Uh, but the performances uh, suffer under the weight of Sorkin's dialogue and the finale undoes a lot of what is edgy and unique about what comes before it. Excellent. And uh, Steve Jobs comes out October 23rd and is rated R for language. This brings us to Crimson Peak. 
In the aftermath of a family tragedy, an aspiring author is torn between love for her childhood friend and the temptation of a mysterious outsider. Trying to escape the ghosts of her past, she is swept away to a house that breathes, bleeds, and remembers. Ghosts are real. This much I know. There are parts of the house that are unsafe. We were confined to the nursery in the attic. Proceed with caution. Has anyone died in this house? Specific deaths, violent deaths. I have to leave. I'm here to take you away. There's nowhere else to go. This is your home now. So here's the thing I don't get about Crimson Peak. Uh, it's directed and co-written by Guillermo del Toro, who previously made the gothic horror masterpiece Pan's, Pan's Labyrinth, Labyrinth. Uh, a film I think should comfortably sit on any list of the all-time greats. So, you know, it's announced he's returning to the gothic horror genre of Crimson Peak with this prestige cast, Mia Wasikowska, Tom Hiddleston, Jessica Chastain, and it seemed like a no-brainer that would obviously be fucking awesome. And while this movie looks absolutely breathtaking, finest costume design, set design, art direction you'll see in any film this year, it is thoroughly unremarkable in every other sense. So if you're Del Toro and you're responsible for one of the most brilliant gothic horror movies ever made, why would you return to that very same genre if you had absolutely nothing new to add to it? Because there's nothing fresh about this movie. It Mm. is slavishly traditional from its story to its execution. Like, marginal update to the formula is that it ultimately comes down to a battle between its two female characters, Edith, Mia Zakoska, and Lucille, Jessica Jastain. Although, guess what? They're still just fighting over a man. Is still, the house I, a male or a female? Do we know that? <laughs> well, I mean, it does bleed. Oh. Uh, so <laughs> and it is called Crimson Peak. <laughs> it is called Crimson Peak. Uh, so, you know, it, it, if only Clueless had come out today instead of in 1995, <laughs> maybe she'd be surfing the Crimson Peak instead of surfing the Crimson Tide. But, alas, we can only imagine. Uh, you know, beyond the art uh, department credentials, the greatest strength of the movie is Mia Wasikowska, who is perfectly cast in a role she sells with the utmost conviction. Although the character archetype is stupid enough that I started hoping that Amy Schumer will add like hapless haunted house damsel in distress to her list of like dumb white bitches to skewer, <laughs> since that's her life's work is just like skewering the like the varying like flora and fauna of dumb white bitches. Oh, absolutely. Just Through imagine, the times. Just imagine her being you know like marrying some creepy dude, marrying into his giant haunt you know mansion with some creepy lady walking around like, huh? You know, I don't, I don't. I mean, I'm, it's okay, okay, I'll stay. You know, I can just see it. I think it'd be one of her best sketches. Uh, Jessica Chastain, who is always a favorite, who is one of our our great actresses, is actually on really shaky ground in this performance. Her casting is off, and her accent is off. Oh no, that's always the worst. It floats in this kind of undefined space between American, British, and German. She'll be like, I don't know what is we're doing, but we must not do it anymore. You know, you're like... Bitch, where are you from? <laughs> it's a Kathy Bates all over again. Oh, uh, poor Kathy Bates. Let's not drag her into this. That was a fine Baltimore accent. <laughs> uh, yeah, in Jessica's attempt to play a mysterious baddie, she mostly comes across as constipated, uh, which, as Elle Woods taught us, is the last thing you should look like when you're dressed as a frigid bitch. <laughs> 
You know, the movie has a few spooky moments, but it undermines its own potency by telling us almost immediately who the schemers are and then periodically checking in with them throughout the movie as if it's like a procedural about schemers rather than oh, a horror no. movie where we're supposed to be in suspense about anything at all. Uh, but silver lining, as he said he would do in interviews, Tom Hiddleston does show that sweet porcelain caboose. <laughs> And true to his word, it's the only nudity in the movie. The ladies stay covered. So you go ahead and get it, Tommy Hids. Excellent. What's your uh, What's the review of this one I'm interested to see? You know, it's also consuming moderation. It's consuming not, it, moderation. It's not. It's saved from, uh, from sent back by the virtue of just how absolutely eye-poppingly gorgeous it is. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's, it's recommended by that. And it's not a terrible movie. It's just disappointing that Del Toro would revisit this genre for something that is not fresh and it's not new and not innovative something that's so traditional but it's original screenplay so they could have done anything they wanted right so it suffers from expectation yes had any yes. other director been tied to it it would have been it still would have been moderation basic. plus maybe <laughs> right maybe it's still it still would have been basic it's still been basic bitch gothic horror but uh but yeah given given the credentials involved it is a disappointment Crimson Peak comes out October 16th and is rated R for bloody violence, some sexual content, and brief strong language. And that brings us to Freeheld. So rather than have Rebecca read the plot summary, uh, we're just going to play a clip for you from the movie of Julianne Moore as Laurel Hester uh, making a speech uh, at a hearing that uh, essentially breaks down the key plot of the film, which is, of course, based on true events. My name is Detective Laurel Hester. I've worked for the Ocean County Police Department for 23 years. I'm here today with my partner, Stacy Andre. In my career, I've never been afraid of injury or death while performing my duties. That's the job, and I love my job. Recently, I was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. It's possible I finally met an opponent I can't beat. Please reconsider your decision and grant my request to assign my pension benefits to Stacy when I'm gone. When my heterosexual colleagues die, their pensions go to their spouses. But because my partner is a woman, I don't get to do that. In my 23 years as a police officer, I've never asked for special treatment. I'm only asking for equality. So, okay, I first realized that Julianne Moore was the greatest actress in the world <laughs> in 1999. Uh, that was the year that it all came together for me. I had been aware of her for a while because as a pretentious youth, I definitely had watched Shortcuts and Safe and Vanya on 42nd Street and uh, all the sort of films that first put her on the world's radar as a really dynamic uh, actress to watch. And then, of course, I saw Boogie Nights uh, and, you know, was struck deeply by, you know, this how incredible she was in that role. Uh, but it was in 1999 when she had five, five fantastic movies that all came out that I really was like, oh, I just realized who the best actress ever is. And it's Julianne Moore. This is bef well before 30 Rock. Well before 30 Rock, which, is, of course, is when most people realize yeah, that that's she when was. It really... I mean, yeah, I mean, like, it's it's one of those things where, you know, not to be that pretentious kid, like, I like her earlier work. But, you know, 30 <laughs> Rock is just too obvious, too obvious. 
Um, and she actually, <laughs> she kind of um, revisits the accent a little bit. Oh, um, really? It's not the Boston accent, of course, but it's like a Jersey accent. Okay. So it's like same general region-ish. And once again, she has been slammed for it. <laughs> Where is she from? She can't catch a break. She actually, um, she well, she's a military brat. So she grew up oh, okay. all over. So, um, you know, so she doesn't really have any one particular place that, you know, she put her roots down in for an accent of her own. Um, so, yeah, she was a military brat. She moved around a lot. But it seems like, you know, as, as, as great as she is with most accents, she tends to <laughs> wrestle a bit when it comes to... Jersey, New York, Boston accents, which is hilarious given that New York is her home and has been for a very long time. Right. Um, but maybe it's just too close to home for her. I don't know. But uh, so 1999, Julianne Moore was in Magnolia. She was in The End of the Affair. She was in Cookie's Fortune. She was in uh, A Map of the World. And she was in An Ideal Husband. Wow. How did you find the time? Those are like five big roles. Yeah. Well, yeah, and there, there's some, yeah, there's some yeah, Map of the World and Cookie's Fortune were supporting parts, uh, and Magnolia was a supporting part. But I feel like she looms so large over that movie, even if it's technically a supporting role. Uh, so, and up until that point, my favorite actresses had been people like Juliette Lewis and Rose McGowan. So oh, right. it was just okay. kind of like, as you know, just kind of a, a sullen gay teen boy. You know, you tend to spark to. Uh, you know, really strong, kick-ass ladies on screen, and Juliette Lewis and Rose McGowan each embody that in their own ways. Uh, and I still love them both, even though you know Rose has now like renounced acting and and you know said that she was like a slave for the entire duration of her acting career. Uh, but you know, I had fun. I had fun watching her <laughs> back when she was acting, even though she was always an actress of, of certainly limited range. Absolutely. Uh, Juliette Lewis is is a, is a phenomenal actress, uh, and I, I continue to watch everything she does but julianne moore is just one of the all-time greats and so ever since 1999 i i have not wavered once uh when asked who my favorite actor was always always her and uh you know and i, I have certainly you know stalked her a bit through the years <laughs> uh it all began uh well my first in-person uh, encounter with her was she was doing a book signing oh, i think i remember this yeah she was doing a book signing in the marina at books inc because she has a children's book series called freckle face strawberry uh which is about a little redheaded girl um because i guess she feels like that was an underrepresented uh uh you know minority finally before. someone is really taking someone the yeah it's really it's bold it's bold yeah. it might lose her some fans but she's she's coming out as a supporter of gender children <laughs> um so uh i saw literally the day of the day of that was happening i got an email from like flavor pill or some shit like that that was like <laughs> events around san francisco julianne moore at books inc in the marina and i was like what and so it was just like a drop everything kind of situation um, where I, yeah, dropped everything and immediately like fled to Books Inc. in the Marina. Um, I had Scott meet me there. He he dutifully also dropped everything and went and got it like a point and shoot camera. Uh, so there could be pictures of me talking to her. Wow. And that is a uh, that is an ideal husband. Yeah. that You want to talk about an ideal husband. Hi-yo. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it was like, I mean, I mentioned this was for a children's book. So, so were you like the tallest I person the, in the room? I was the weird adult male in the room okay. that was like full of children and marina moms. And then like me like hovering in the background, sort of like rubbing my hands together. and <laughs> Sweating profusely. Yeah, sweating a lot. 
Um, and then fortunately, there's at least one other guy there who was like weirder than me, who had like a stack of like black and white headshots. Oh wow! <laughs> of her and like a bunch of markers and just like looked seedy. So I'm like, thank you, thank you for showing up. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, so uh, that was the first time I ever met her in person. We've had like she once responded to me on Twitter. Oh. Uh, and I was also a caller for her on Watch What Happens Live once. Uh, so there's a whole breadcrumb, you know, trail of breadcrumbs for me and Julianne. I think she she knows I'm there. Really leading yeah. up to this interview? Really all leading up to this interview. Did you, when you had this interview, did you were you like, do you remember me from? I'm like, hey, remember when you said thank you to me on Twitter? <laughs> did you? Uh, no. <laughs> and I mean, she humored me. No, uh, it was fortunately I did not have enough time to really get into our full personal history. <laughs> so I just had to okay. dive in and talk free held with her. And that is what I did. So let's see. You you started off, you asked me some really great questions. And, and we're so lucky to be able to play those uh, clips here on the show. Um, you talked to Ellen about... Ellen Page also was part of the interview. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so. she was there, too. <laughs> Uh, a wonderful actress in her own right, yes. uh, o- overshadowed in Jason's mind by Julianne Moore's mere existence. Uh, I was not aware that Ellen was there. Um, like, and that other guy, who's this? <laughs> uh, yeah, you have a question for you too. Um, well, yeah, my first question was for Ellen, just so, Ellen I, just so I can get it out of the way. About just like, all right, just so like, where we can get to the good stuff. Starring. Yeah, I, uh, you know, in reading the press notes, I saw that Ellen had, um, she'd been attached to the project for a very long time. It started off as a, a, a documentary short that won uh, the Oscar the year it came out for Best Short Subject Documentary. And Ellen had been attached to turn it into uh, a feature-length film since then. Uh, as a producer, and uh, so I wanted to hear a little bit more from her about that. And uh, so you were attached from the beginning as a producer. Did you always see yourself playing Stacy? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But my first entrance to this was to play Stacy. Okay. Michael Shamberg and Stacy Share sent me the documentary, and I, you know, wept. Mm-hmm. It's it's amazing if you haven't seen it. Um, uh, hard to watch, of course. And um, and so I attached myself to play Stacy, and it was really Michael Shamer and Stacy Shear were so gracious and generous, and really involved me as well as my uh, manager Kelly Bush in the development process. Mm-hmm. What was it about Stacy that you saw that you were like, this is this is something I want to bring to the screen. This is something I want to embody. Uh, I mean, I really just think it was. I was just so moved by the story. I was moved by their love, their dedication towards one another. I thought what they went through was um, what they went through. Not I thought was what they went through was just cruel. Um, and um, I think it was just how emotionally moved I was. You know, I really I just feel honored and grateful to be a part of telling their story. I should honestly. note at this point that I actually had the privilege of sitting down with Julian and Ellen in addition to three of my favorite colleagues from uh, the Bay Area press uh, community, uh, Marco Cerritos, Josh Rotter, and Bernard Boo, uh, who are three awesome guys who I've had the privilege of sitting with in this kind of uh, environment many times. And some of these questions are theirs, so credit where credit is due. Uh, with that said, I will not be giving them any credit for their individual questions. <laughs> so in this question, Julianne addresses uh, movies and their influence on culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, uh, she is asked about uh, a quote that she had given um, about movies having the ability to really affect change or not, and she clarifies her position on that. 
Movies don't necessarily change culture. I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know if we know for sure that movies change culture, right. but I do know that they reflect it. Right. It's, it's. Um, people will sometimes say like, "Well, this movie broke totally new ground." And I'm like, "Well, no, you know what? Actually, <laughs> the ground was broken, and we made a movie about it." You know, so, so they, I do believe, and and they are concomitant sometimes. You know, right. sometimes something will be ha happen in popular culture, and a movie will kind of be right there, and and you'll have this perception that maybe the movie got there first, but in reality, culture gets there first. Right. Um, so I think that that's kind of a, a, a wonderful thing. It's a little bit like the Supreme Court. Like I feel like the Supreme Court usually makes a decision on something once popular opinion has actually swum another way. They very rarely lead with an opinion. They usually are following the opinion of the American people. Yes. So I feel like movies are that way too. In this next segment, uh, Julianne talks about Freehold in comparison to another uh, uh, Les movie that she did, The Kids Are All Right, uh, a very different uh, lesbian movie. And uh, here she explains some of those differences uh, for those who might think that just because they're both stories about lesbians that they are somehow the same movie, which is, of course, not at all the case. Well, one of the things that's interesting about The Kids Are All Right is that they're also living, they're, they're, they're living in a different place. They're living in a major American urban center, living in Los Angeles. They were wealthy. They had, a, you know, one one of the partners was a doctor. Um, they had, uh, they didn't, they didn't see, they didn't have a whole lot of political strife within the world they were living in due to their socioeconomic status. Um, when and and when you see Laurel and Stacey, and also that story is a fiction. Right. This story is true, and right. so when you see Laurel and Stacy, they're living in a much different kind of world. They're living in a, in a very, very conservative, the most conservative, politically conservative county in New Jersey. So they're they're living there. Um, they're they're living at a time before domestic partnership was even passed. When it was passed, Corzine had this weird loop in it that allowed the county officials to determine benefits package. So you see, what you you see a, a personal story being told within a, a very different political world and the ramifications of those political decisions on that relationship. Um, so it's, it is ultimately about how the personal is political. What, what does inequality mean? It means that you can't keep your house. Right. You know, it means that you're not recognized as a partner. You know, it's a, it's a very different look at a same-sex relationship, I'd say. Freeheld is unquestionably uh, a, a tearjerker. And uh, in this clip, Ellen and Julianne talk about sort of the emotional experience of working on the movie and uh, whether they are able to shake off the just emotional impact of filming these very, very intense scenes. I had those experiences. Mm -hmm. I think. More when we'd finished takes, I feel like. I just like, I felt like it could keep going, particularly yeah. stuff in the hospital or when Stacy gets the diagnosis that there's, you know, there's not looking for a cure anymore. Yeah, and that yeah. stuff, I think when you know the person, obviously I cannot even begin to understand or have any concept of what that experience is like. But I think just out of care for these people and what they went through, it was, there were moments where I was just so deeply, I haven't had that experience shooting a film mm -hmm. where I felt it impacted separate. I think a lot of people on the set did too. That was, it was interesting. We'd look around and our first AD would be crying, yeah. you know, um, the person who was, who was our wardrobe supervisor, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So people were very invested personally in the story and very moved by it, even when we were making it. Uh, yeah. And I think too, for, you know, gay people in particular, a lot of the, even the smaller things that other people might not notice, like the nuances of being in a closeted relationship or, um, 
you know, all these moments that were uh, emotional, I would say. So it's been a real love fest between Ellen Page and Julianne Moore on the promotional trail for Freeheld. And in this clip, uh, they both speak a little bit to the nature of their friendship on the set during production. She is uh, always singing and I'm dancing. I'm terribly serious. Blow <laughs> <laughs> your mind, honestly. I've been telling people about it because they ask me what it's like working with Julie, of course. And she's literally up until action, singing and dancing. And then it's like, and then it's like action, Julianne Moore. Like action. Oscar winner <laughs> performance or whatever. <laughs> um, and uh, so like you were the one that really. Yeah. But like, we just had we we had a, it's we had hard to say it because it's a true story and it's you yeah know, obviously devastating. But we just got along so well and we really had a special time together. Yeah, it was really it was it was great to have somebody who was my partner on screen and my partner off screen. Mm. Um, we both had the same goals and the same desires and the, and the same. Um, relationship to the to the story you know and, and to wanting to, to make it be alive and to wanting to to um illuminate this part the, their partnership laurel and stacy's partnership yep. do you know so so that was that was exciting for me because often you not often but you don't always know if you're going to be in the same movie as the as the act that you're working it with or have the same goals and we very much did and now my first question to julianne of the round table uh which you will hear in the clip Speaking of needed levity, uh, you're coming off of a lengthy award season where you were called upon to speak about Alzheimer's quite frequently. Right. And now you're on a press tour talking about marriage equality and struggles for legal equality for LGBT people, yeah. plus leading into another award season. How do you, is that daunting to be a spokesperson for these major issues? How do you prepare? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, yeah, we have to, you have to take a test before you get the parts and then you talk about it. You know, it's... um. It is. It is daunting, and one of the things I keep saying to people, saying to people, is I'm not an expert on either one of these subjects. I'm, I'm speaking from the point of view as, a, as an actor and a person, and you learn as much as you can. I think the great thing about being an actor is it does expose you to things that you maybe wouldn't have been exposed to. So you have the opportunity to learn and do research and to really figure it out, and to and to speak about what it means to you as a person. Like I said, I always stress that uh, this is neither one of these situations has been my experience. I am not an expert. I did as much research as I could, but I can't speak from. We can't, like Ellen was saying earlier, you can't presume to have gone through something like this personally because you, you know, you haven't. But um, but you do try to um, give voice to to something that you've had an opportunity to to learn something about. On the subject of having to talk about weighty things, uh, in this next segment, uh, Julianne speaks to uh, the nature of discrimination and its relationship with sexuality. Well, that there's no difference. Do you know that there? That I think. I think the really the most important thing to to understand is that sexuality doesn't make you any different as a human being, and I think that that's the that's that's at the root of, of, of discrimination. People somehow have determined that a different sexuality makes you somehow a different kind of human being and that is simply untrue. It doesn't, it, it doesn't determine anything. Sexual preference is sexual preference, period. Right. It doesn't color it, it doesn't color any other aspect of your humanness except where you are discriminated against. When asked to elaborate further about uh, what she has learned uh, playing lesbian characters and specifically about the struggles of gay and lesbian Americans. 
uh, Julianne spoke eloquently about what she learned talking to Ellen about her experiences coming out. I think the struggle, um, well, you know what was interesting is just when you think that you don't, you think that you know something, you discover that you, you discover something else. Like when Ellen was talking to me about her experiences as a young woman who was coming out in Hollywood, and I was really flabbergasted, really stunned. And I was telling, we were telling the story of that guy out. He was like, come on, you've known all these gay people. And blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, but they're old. <laughs> they're old. <laughs> they all came out a long time ago. You know, so to be, to, to talk to someone who had very recently gone through it and, and really um, explored the, just, you know, even though, and it sounds so silly, but even the notion of when Ellen said to me she felt uncomfortable having to dress a certain way, and I was like, really? You know, and that hadn't occurred to me that you would put something on and think like, I don't want to wear this. This is, makes me feel bad. You know, so, so there's always something else to learn. That's what I mean, too. Even when you think that you, you, you think you know something, um, there's always something else that comes back. And, and, and just, the, just the degree of it's worth it to, to hear about personal feelings of discrimination. Because, mm -hmm. because we don't know. You don't know. You know, and it's, it's, you learn more by being told. The character played by Ellen Page and Freeheld, Stacey Andre, uh, is still with us and was at the uh, world premiere of the film at the Toronto Film Festival, which I also attended. Um, in this segment, Ellen speaks about the experience of watching the movie with Stacey, uh, as well as the character played by Michael Shannon, uh, who Julianne refers to in this clip. Kind of, I felt like kind of concerned for her the whole yeah. time because I have an emotional experience watching the film. And usually, when you're in a movie, you know you're disconnected from it. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to. You're never gonna feel what you felt making it. Mm -hmm. So there's something about when you watch a scene, you kind of leave going because like, you, you'll never feel that feeling again. And I think you kind of expect it. I um, mean, this does. This totally affects me emotionally. So I really, it was special to have made it to have. After all, you know, these years to be at the, you know, Toronto Film Festival and be showing it, like, you know, it's really special to share the story. But I think my main thing was concern. I think we always felt, I think we always feel concern and care for Stacey yeah. and want her to just be protected. She's super sensitive, too. She's yeah. very, very sensitive. And Dane, one of the things that was so interesting about Dane is that Dane still protects Stacey. And even in the beginning stages of her research, she would be ramping on the phone saying, listen, you know, she's a very special girl. I love this girl very much. And I want to make sure she's going to be okay through all this. And I was so touched that here was this guy, you know, like standing sentry over Stacey still. Um, and, and, and so it's really, yeah, everybody just wanted to make sure she was okay. If there's one thing that Julianne Moore and I do not have in common, it's that we do not both love watching her movies. <laughs> she does not want to watch them ever, and which is something I actually noticed at the Toronto Film Festival because um, I was seeing a booth directly next to uh, the Freeheld camp. And the whole movie, I was waiting for Julianne to come up there because they all go out on stage beforehand to introduce it, and the director and the cast and everybody... And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be like sitting in the booth next to Julianne Moore watching the movie with her. Because um, last year I was in the very same booth set up for the Wild uh, world premiere. And so I was like watching Reese Witherspoon watch Wild, which was a trip. So I was like, it's going to happen with Julianne for this one. But then she was just gone. Uh, so I'm sitting there watching the movie. And then her, her seat where she was supposed to be was just empty. It was just Ellen Page and everyone else, Michael Shannon. Uh, but then eventually Julianne appeared for maybe the last 15 minutes of the movie, which I guess was like all that she was willing to watch. Uh, so in this clip, uh, Julianne and Ellen uh, talk about 
the reasons why they do not like to watch their own work. I can't, literally can't remember. <laughs> I can barely remember, you know, I don't know. I she don't doesn't know. See, you don't see them ever, I don't see so she movies. doesn't see I, them. Yeah, very rarely see yeah. them. And so I don't have any relation. Once I finish something, I have I have no relationship with it. Because <laughs> 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 it's true what Ellen said. You know, our pleasure, our joy comes in the actual doing of it. Like that's, I think that's why with actors too, we have a very much what's next um, uh, personality because the fun and the excitement and the and the art of it comes being and being on set, being with all those people and creating it and having that moment and having those connections and stuff. And so once you're um, once that's finished, you're like, oh, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, you sort of forget. But you never get nostalgic enough to want to revisit a good experience on set or a good performance? No, because watching it doesn't give me that. It's a weird, yeah, it's yeah. a weird, and it's not just like, oh, my face. It's like, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's an yeah. It really, it really is. <laughs> it really is a strange experience because I think a part of you really does expect to feel what you felt on the day. Mm. And you're never going to feel that never gonna watching feel a that. movie. You're never, it's never going to compare to being with Julie and Trini and seeing with Julie. So there's something about it that... Like, it's sort of fun even when you do, like, a bit of a part in a movie. So then you get to go and, like, you know, you get to, like, wa actually watch the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in this last clip, um, you you kind of have an interesting, there's an interesting response. You ask uh, Julianne about uh, her take on gun control, and it gets kind of, what how what happened there? Yeah, so here's the thing. Uh, what I did not realize as I launched into this question was that the interview had ended. Oh. Uh, because behind my back, uh, one of the publicists had cued another journalist at the round table and said, like, one more question for the question right before me. Oh, literally behind your back. Yeah, not literally like behind my back. Setting you up. So exactly. Like, okay. Not like mean girl style behind my back. Like literally <laughs> okay. was staying behind me. Gotcha. And and motioned like one more question um, for the question that came directly before me. And I had no idea <laughs> that she had done that. And so as far as I knew, we were just going to keep going around the table. And um, so, you know, Julian and Ellen had just had their big kind of fun, vivacious, laughy, like, oh, we don't like watching ourselves thing. <laughs> and they're like, great, let's end there. And then I'm like, gun control. <laughs> uh and so what you hear here is the sound of Julianne Moore very firmly and very succinctly answering a question because she is no longer required to be turning on movie star charm. <laughs> uh, so she, you'll notice a, a distinct change in energy and tone in her response in this clip. Freeheld starts off as a as a cop movie, and if you went yeah. into it knowing nothing about it, you would think at the beginning you're settling in for a cop story. That's right. And uh, and I was trying to remember the last time that I had seen you sort of authoritatively point a gun, and I thought it was probably Hannibal. Yeah, uh, yeah, probably. But uh, and I was wondering, you've been so wonderfully outspoken about gun control. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if when you see in a script that's calling for you to be like pointing a gun or shooting a gun, does it make you less likely to take the role? Do you try to avoid that? Not if it's a police officer. You know, remember, I mean, my issues about, about gun safety are strictly that, about gun safety. Mm -hmm. I believe that you need to have a license, that you need to have background checks. I believe in lockboxes. I believe in the Constitution. You know, mm -hmm. the Second Amendment says we have the right to bear arms. That means we also have the right to be responsible about them. So a police officer with a gun in the movie is, is not irresponsible. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to my review of Freeheld. So I feel like the first thing I need to stress about it is that it's not a disease movie, despite the fact that it stars Julianne Moore one year after Still Alice as a woman oh. dying of cancer. 
Uh, I think, you know, there's a rush to be sort of jaded and cynical about like, oh, it's a, it's another, she's trying to win another Oscar by playing another dying person or that kind of thing. And, um, and it's a very serious movie, but uh, it's not the, the, the cancer is not actually the focus. Uh, It's very much an issue movie uh, committing to celluloid, the most textbook known case representing the essential need legally for marriage equality. Um, if you want to talk about a crowd pleaser, this is one of those movies that actually has audience applause beats written into it. Really? Do you think it's a contender? No, not in the slightest. Uh, not an awards contender at all. Okay. Uh, it, 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 it doesn't... No, it just isn't. If, if there's any performance that could possibly be considered for it, it would be if they run Ellen Page's supporting, then she might have an outside chance. Uh, there's also been a lot of positive response to Michael Shannon um, in uh, his role as Julianne Moore's partner uh, on the law force, on the police force. Uh, but no, this is not going to be, I don't think Julianne's going to get nominated for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I and mean, if she got snubbed for The Kids Are All Right and she got snubbed for A Single Man, then I don't think she's going to get nominated for Free Health. Mm-hmm. Not, of course, that it's the same um, you know, competition year after year. Uh, Steve Carell actually has a, a, a really kind of uh, crowd-pleasing, and that word again, performance here as um, as sort of a flamboyant gay Jewish lawyer uh, who takes on uh, Laurel and Stacey's case. And he comes very close to supporting actor consideration care uh, uh, territory, but uh, he just has these really cringy, oh, honey, oh, uh, no. moments. And I'm like, I get that that's the way the guy is and yeah. that that's like the script, but it's just really, really embarrassing to watch him do it. Uh, this movie gives people exactly what they want from this kind of inspirational story without ever challenging them or presenting ambiguity. It's it's all very simplistic. There's the right side, the wrong side, and the people on the wrong side who need to be brought around to the right side. And, you know, however accurate that may be, it does not resonate as great art. So it just sort of, like, lays it down for you and kind of explains... It's, it's how what how you should feel about this. Yeah, I mean the screenplay is by Ron Nyswainer, who wrote Philadelphia, oh. which is why I call this Lesadelphia, <laughs> and it's really similar territory, uh, you know, to that movie. Uh, Where that one wasn't was a disease movie, and that one was a disease movie, uh, and well, just like this, it, it 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 sort of it coupled the disease aspect with the need for legal protection and, and equality for LGBT people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it's very similar territory. Uh, it's not quite as groundbreaking as that was. Uh, however much controversy there was at the time about Philadelphia and you know, sort of the lack of attention that it gave to Tom Hanks' character as like a sexual being, you know, like the effect to which right. it kind of neutered him and made him, uh, you know, had him like slow dance with Antonio Banderas once. And like aside from that, he was always just suffering. And, you know, and like Freeheld, it also had criticism that it was more about changing a straight person's mind um, than it was about actually this gay man in his own life. Uh, but in both cases, though, that's the story. It's about, mm-hmm. like, that. that is the story of the struggle for LGBT equality under the law, is changing hearts and minds of those who don't think that it's an important issue. Right. And so I think that, you know, is not the problem I have with Freeheld at all. Not uh, that it and, it, and it doesn't quite stoop to the Stonewall, Stonewall approach of, of being a, a gay movie for straight straight audience I'm just I trying mean, to get you to stop laughing Sto- <laughs> like, I mean Stonewall is plenty gay uh, uh-huh. like it basically plays like a musical that forgot to add songs like it's <laughs> it's gay as hell but it, it, it's it's just bad uh, as I as I mentioned uh, in the interview 
uh, in my in my in my precarious final question, uh, Freehold actually starts off as a cop movie, and it's actually a lot more interesting and compelling when it's just about a closeted female detective who's hiding her relationship um, from her colleagues prior to the cancer diagnosis. Like that was more resonant to me. Uh, Julianne and Ellen are both solid but kind of unspectacular. Uh, it should be noted though this is the first time that Ellen has actually played a lesbian character. Uh, oh, interesting. One question that I wanted to ask her that I didn't get to was if she had been offered any lesbian roles prior to this that she turned down because she was still closeted and did not want to draw attention to that. Um, so I'll just have to go on wondering about that one. Uh, but this is her first ever lesbian character. Um, and, uh, interesting. And uh, so I, I imagine that had to have been cathartic and personally significant Absolutely. to her. Burning question. Yes. Was the age difference at all awkward? In the movie? You know, I mean, they... I don't know if it's the age difference so much as just the fact that Ellen Page is so small (laughs) that she doesn't quite register as, like, a human adult. Uh, So, and, you know, so it just... I'm not going to say it was comical, <laughs> but I'm going to say it was comical. Uh, no, I mean, like, they, they definitely go a long way, Julianne especially, because um, I think it was kind of on Julianne to make it seem less weird. Yeah. I think absolutely. the idea of Ellen Page being in love with Julianne more is is totally believable. It's probably true. Um, but I think that it was kind of, it felt to Julianne to, um, to sort of do the heavy lifting to make the relationship believable. Mm-hmm. And um, and she does. Uh, they 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 seem they have a very very sweet um, uh, chemistry in the film. Uh, espe- I thought you were going to say cat collection. <laughs> sweet cat family. The cat collection also does a lot of heavy lifting okay, um, in terms of believability. There's certainly a lesbian consultant at work there. Okay. Uh, but in the, it helps that and this is it is a love story and the movie is is probably best thought of as just a love letter to Laurel Hester, the character Julianne played, who who did pass away. And it's a love story to her and to her love story with 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 Stacy, and and the live the the too short the too short love story that the two of them uh, got to enjoy that ultimately led to uh, a really groundbreaking uh, moment uh, legally and culturally, and uh, so that is the nicest thing I can say about Freeheld is that it is a love story it's a love letter to these two remarkable women um, who did something very very special. They don't have much in terms of like the love story part of it, where it's about like them falling in love and them being, you know, physical and that kind of thing is, is a pretty short part of the movie because then the diagnosis comes in. And then after that, it's more about like, it's like a tragic, noble love uh, uh, where, you know, where it's, it's Julianne wasting away while Ellen holds her and fights for her. So they don't really have the burden of selling it sexually or that kind of thing. But it is a lesbian movie, so that's kind of how. <laughs> that's all lesbian relationships. Anyway. Yeah, there's, there's, it's just a lot of like Instead just of lesbian noble bed death. It's just actual le- lesbian death. <laughs> this is quite literally. Oh, that's terrible. That's quite literally lesbian bed death. Uh, this is lesbian bed death. The movie. <laughs> oh God, that's awful. My apologies to the memory of Laurel Hester, <laughs> and to uh, the ongoing Stacey Andre. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so they don't really have to sell it as like a sexy romance. It's definitely just like a tragic romance and, uh, you know, and they both do that very well. And the movie works best if you think of it as just a love letter to these two women and to, uh, the love that they felt for each other, a love that ultimately had a very profound impact, uh, legally and culturally. And so for that, hats off. Uh, but as a film, as a drama, uh, it, it, it falls short. Great. 
Thank you, Jason. Free Health comes out October 2nd and is rated PG-13 for some thematic elements, language, and sexuality. Thematic elements, i.e. lesbianism. Exactly. If you've made it this far into the podcast, then guess what? You get a treat. As a, as a little Easter egg for, <laughs> for those of you who are still listening, uh, to sort of uh, celebrate the fact that I got to interview Julianne Moore, I would like to do for you uh, a, a parlor trick of mine <laughs> that I have been called upon to do many times uh, over the years. It's my favorite thing. In the 16 years since I first learned this monologue, I have performed it uh, at countless bars and parties, and <laughs> now I will commemorate it uh, here on the very first Binge Podcast. So for your listening pleasure, uh, here is my version of Julianne Moore's Pharmacy Scene Meltdown from Magnolia. <clears throat> Motherfucker. Motherfuck, motherfucker, who the fuck do you think you are? I come in here, but you don't, don't you call me lady. I come in here, you look suspicious, ask questions. I'm sick. I have sickness all around me and you fucking ask me my life, what's wrong? Have you seen death in your bed, in your house? <laughs> I'm made to answer these fucking questions, what's wrong? Suck my dick, and that's what's wrong with you! You fucking gummy lady! Shame on you! Shame on you! Shame on both of you! And scene. Thank you. Thank you. You know, is no matter how many times I do that, I always like the, the emotional roller coaster I feel inside, it's always there. So I'm just full of feelings right now. Oh, good, because we'll have to do that clip again. Okay. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of the very first episode of the Binge Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening, assuming that anyone listened to it. Uh, it's been a pleasure. We're looking forward to doing more of these. Uh, in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, at Jason underscore Leroy, and you can read more of my reviews and interviews at the Binge website, uh, thebinge.us. Uh, so until next time, on behalf of Rebecca and myself, thanks for listening. Binging on movies, binging with Jason. You're binging on movies with Jason. Da-da-da-da-da. Here comes the binge.